0: I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome to our broadcast today, host of To See Each Other and director of People's Action and People's Action Institute, George Gale. Welcome
1: to the program. Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, George, your podcast is a journey to Michigan, Iowa, New Jersey, North Carolina, and Indiana to reveal how small town folk um, have responded to the current economic climate.
1: I I mean, overall, people are just really struggling to make meaning of so many changes in American life. Uh, Not only the pandemic, but, you know, changing demographics, changing economic conditions, changes in popular culture, and how people are making meaning about those changes really ranges. Uh, But but people are struggling. And I I would say the other key point is, Most of the meaning makers, as you will, if they were either media or community leaders, uh, trend quite conservative. And so, if you're trying to kind of come to an understanding of what's happening and why things are changing, you're gonna you're likely to get a conservative kind of viewpoint in terms of helping you figure that out,
0: right? So, how are the the folks in the communities that you report on and that you're thinking about in the podcast, how, how are they specifically? Responding to what are perceived to be, and I think correctly perceived to be, the failure of the federal government and many state governments in their response to the pandemic.
1: I mean, it's all over the place. I think that, uh, you know, a lot of folks in rural communities are, you know, taking in a lot of right wing and conservative content. And it's really, you know, I think further going off the rails, your recent episode with the, the CNN uh, journalist who, who created wrote this book about Fox. I don't remember the name. I mean, that really lines up with our experience, but even more moving to even more extreme kind of right-wing media. And what we've also found is people are very open to a much more kind of progressive uh, orientation and understanding of what's happening. So just as one example, like we pre-COVID went and knocked on 10,000 doors in rural communities and we intentionally went to a number of places that would be defined as kind of Obama to Trump counties and uh, and also places in deep economic decline and in some cases uh, a heavy rise in white nationalist mobilizations in the community and we asked people three questions what issues are you most concerned about what do you see as the solutions which was our effort to not project a progressive solution on whatever people saw as the problems and then finally, like, who and what do you think is responsible for the fact that conditions are on the decline here? And on that last question, 81% of or 41% of people said that undocumented immigrants were a major source of the challenges that they face. But 81% of people said a government that was in capture by corporations uh was, was a main cause. So you definitely you had kind of a more of a right wing and maybe more of a left-wing populism kind of alive and well in both, but actually the notion that government was not serving folks and was more likely to serve the super rich and powerful, like was something that people were coming to on their own. We weren't leading people there.
0: And how how do you differentiate between though that question of, of rural and conservatism and, and not classifying it with a monolithic brush of, um, rural folks are are um, Trump conservative or, you know, pre-Trump conservative. Um, what you got at in your comment just now was aligning with Kathy Kramer's research in rural Wisconsin and yeah. blaming um, the other for contemporary problems. And I'm fascinated by your approach to th- get at causation of how people form their perceptions or, or opinions or their their public policy preferences.
1: Yeah, right, and obviously what conservative means today seems to mean something very different than eight years ago. Um, I mean, the two main meanings we experience people to be making um, and that are kind of animating people's activity and, and as it relates to elections, is that there's a lot of self-blame going on that we experience some people just really like, um, Maybe the, they are the person in their gen, their family lineage that actually didn't build on this kind of American idea of doing better than the generation before them. And so experienced a lot of people struggling with that. People would tell us about that on the doors, be way more open and vulnerable about that than you might expect. Um, and real specific stories of how they're, even in some cases, their dad was an immigrant and he came here and he worked hard and he figured stuff out. And like, I've not been able to succeed. I'm now in this rundown trailer and even share with us, they're struggling with alcoholism or opioids. So so blaming the self, which I think can really be connected to a lot of the deaths of despair that you see in a lot of rural communities. And then the other thing that's very animated by a Fox News or a Breitbart um, or a lot of the stuff that's appearing now on Facebook and YouTube is blaming others, people of color, immigrants, um, government as the, the problem. And I, mean, I think like both are alive and well. And then I think to your original point around the fact that there is a tendency to write off most of rural America and probably specifically rural whiter America as nothing but kind of Trump loving racist. It's just it's it's not accurate. Like, I mean, it just doesn't the data doesn't play out um, and it's really not helpful for developing good strategy because you're saying we're going to basically if you even go by the rural definition of places with 2500 people or less as rural, which I think is a pretty like rigid definition that's still somewhere between 55 and 60 million people in the country so a political strategy that just kind of says okay we're just going to write that off and we're going to try to win minus you know basically a fifth of the country actually doesn't make any sense and the last point i'd make on this is like president obama won 43 percent of the rural vote hillary clinton in 2008 and hillary clinton in 2016 won just over 30 percent of it so people that want to see you know the end of trump Like, you don't have to win rural, but you can't get crushed, and and Democrats got crushed in rural areas in 2016. Are
0: you anticipating that Vice President Biden will be clobbered, or do you think that, you know, like, much like Hillary Clinton, or do you think that his inroads into the suburbs are going to also be inroads into some rural America?
1: I think, I think yes, I, I think on the latter, and I think if you look at between 2016 and 2018, the two demographics that swung the furthest from Trump and Republicans and two Democrats in the midterms were single rural white women. And it was a 17 point swing. And then young rural white folks, 18 to 29, that was a 16 point swing. And I think a lot of that will stick. It might not be that strong. And this is, we don't, there's not great polling or data on this, but the two things that we saw through our 10,000 conversations was a reaction to Trump and the Republicans trying to take away the ACA and also I think in some cases a uh, an empathy for kind of migrant families at the border and feeling like the policy there was just you know a bridge too far for many so I think I think some of that I would say if there was something to watch it'd be young rural and 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 women rural generally and then single rural women in particular
0: George, obviously we're never going to have the case study. Well, never say never, but it's <laughs> unlikely we're going to have the case study of how Sanders would perform in those communities relative to Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. Uh, but the Sanders argument was if you're being authentic and authentically true to policy, um, pro union, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: pro fair trade, it's hard to play this counterfactual when, when we, mm-hmm. we just don't know, but, visiting the communities that you did uh, do you think that sanders might have been more formidable in them than biden
1: i think that in both the fact that he's you know i always think of sanders as somebody that was like he was there before the movement got there he was just kind of waiting around for the movement to show up so his kind of consistency of really being willing to fight for people um, I think stood out for a lot of folks and we experienced a lot of people in the communities to to have an affinity to Sanders. And I think just as important is the fact that I don't wish we lived in a world where you have to name a villain, but I kind of think we're in a moment in a populist moment where you have to name who's responsible. And I think it's been a struggle that many Democrats have because um, of close relationships with wall street tech and, you know, and in big energy, like it's been hard to do that. And so I think, the, the language, it, it just, it doesn't ring sincere. And so the fact that as people are trying to figure out like, well, how did this happen? How did I go from being part of a family that was H generation was doing better. And we had $20 an hour jobs and a pension. And, you know, we could get maybe the second car, all of that to like, I'm, you know, living in this small trailer and I'm you know working at McDonald's and, uh, and I'm not going to do better than my family did that. I just think people need a villain And I think that would have been a powerful part of Sanders uh, Sanders story.
0: I think with Biden you're testing whether or not the tribal appeal can be more cultural than policy driven in the sense that Biden is is not as far to the left um in, in the way that you know some conservatives uh you know believe on the trade issue um mm-hmm. much more aligned with, with the far left, far right kind of in in collective unison there. But with with Biden, it, it's more original patriotism, a la kind of Bob Dole, um, or or war vets who've run Eisenhower. Um, do you think that'll translate and resonate?
1: I think just something about Biden as a not even a familiar person, but a familiar type of elected to older rural white voters in in a moment, and I think particularly because of the pandemic. I think that is going to be compelling. There are definitely more, if you go to rural communities right now, the ones I've gone to, they're mainly in the Midwest, is uh, you'll see many more Biden signs than you saw Clinton signs. I think there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, still more Trump signs, but I, I, I we're experiencing uh, rural, older folks to be like open to Biden. And actually the thing that's particularly resonating is the, the idea that he would care for them. And I think right now people are feeling very scared and vulnerable.
0: George, let me ask you, I asked you from the outset about what unified these communities, but Mm. what, what is different in those communities in the States that we mentioned, um, you know, starting with the most reliably pro Trump in Indiana, you know, moving Mm. up towards a New Jersey that is, you know, pretty strongly democratic, but has some patchwork of rural conservatism. But what was different about these respective Mm -hmm. communities?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think not surprisingly, the context in the South is just so different. Like, the people are very familiar with um, seeing active mobilizations of like avowed white nationalists at the county courthouse. So, there's definitely been an uptick in communities over the last four years, but it's not otherworldly to folks. And so, when I'd go down to Alamance County, North Carolina, and just be driving to the next meeting, and there'd be a white nationalist mobilizing. They're like, Oh yeah, that's every day at five. They just do that. And they're here. Um, and so just a lot more of that. I mean, we've had our,
0: is that that a pre-Trump phenomenon though?
1: I I think there's, I should, I think it's something that's been there for a long time, but has really picked up since Trump for sure. Major uptick and new organizations being formed. Some of them are neo-Confederate. So they're just very focused on like Confederate monuments. Some of them are like avowed white nationalists. We've had our canvassers run out of trailer courts by the Klan in some of these counties in the South. So that's just a very different thing than in the North, um, where I think you still, let's go to Michigan, um, you might be dealing with some racial resentment that's been sowed by Fox and, you know, dog whistle politics and other things over the years. But you also have people that are not that far removed from being part of a union and having kind of worker solidarity and maybe even voting Democrat. And so people are like, and sometimes a little easier to pull back in. Um, and then you go to Indiana and you're just there's been very little organizing in Indiana for years. And so you're you're in very conservative towns. You're not talking about progressive messages or issues. You're just meeting people where they're at um, around like a increase in opioid use and alcoholism and, and major health outcome challenges. Um, so people are really suffering and the kind of road to bringing people towards a more progressive stance is is much longer, so it's it's, it's, it's different in each place, but um, but actually every, what we're learning is if you are present and are with people and there are people there to help people make meaning of, of pretty significant changes in their communities, like really good stuff happens. I don't know if if you've seen this deep canvas work we did, but we went out, had the 10,000 conversations. We then helped people kind of run little campaigns to get relief on opioids or stop a factory farm that was coming in or uh, when Medicaid expansion and people moved into multi-race. in most communities, uh, multiracial relationships, started talking about how race was one of the key reasons they'd not been together in the first place. And some people would just say, like, hey, I just can't get with where kind of Democrats or progressives are going on immigration. And so we did a deep canvas program where we had thousands of conversations across North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And deep canvassing is like a long form conversation on the front porch, uh, 15 to 20 minutes. And we don't judge people, you don't debate, you engage around a complicated issue, in this case, immigration. And we did that, we teamed up with folks from Yale and Berkeley and ended up increasing support for immigrants being included in public benefits, undocumented immigrants by twenty percent through this this long form, non judgmental kind of radical empathy conversation, and we have found that the data on that it actually the impact is the same across states, and we think this. And we're running a big program in the presidential right now, and we're having similar results.
0: I think that's really commendable work. And to ask you more specifically, um. In that deep canvassing, I don't know to what extent it is anonymous and you can reveal the answer to this question, but um, when folks would identify undocumented workers or illegal immigrants in in their speak um, as the culprit um, and the challenge or obstacle to their having the livelihood that they want, um, was that usually on the basis of, of story? I, going back to this question mm-hmm. yeah. of, you know, the anecdotal origin of people's convictions and does that kind of deep canvas model get at, you know, sort of the understandable um, mm-hmm. causation or correlation between how someone has experienced life and where they come out on that question of immigration or race.
1: That's a, that's such a perfect question. And this is one of the most popular episodes of To See Each Other is the second episode where we go to Michigan and a canvasser walks you through the whole experience. But um, really interestingly, what tends to happen 10 to 12 minutes into the conversation is the person comes to re- realization on their own that their view on immigration comes from almost no lived experience. It's, you know, and I mean, I was, I've was i canvassed in all three of the states. We did this project. It was very common for somebody to be like, you know what? Come to think of it, I don't know any immigrants. Like, everything I think about immigration, I learned on the TV after I got home from work. Like, that is where I learned to think about it. And so then you would see it wash over people's face. Like, this is not... And then the other conclusion people would come to is some version of like, wait, there is a reason my community is poor. It's probably not the migrant families that I've never met that have come here or not even come here, but I see them on the TV. So I I think you're on to something. And I think the more we can help people kind of see that something happens through human connection, it's harder to do through digital and media.
0: But I wonder how many of those anecdotes are tangential and not necessarily specific to immigrants, but they still get at the question that Kathy Kramer investigated, which is you know, my life has not been successful because benefits have been prescribed for others. And Mm. so it's, it's kind of this inverse racism or reverse racism idea. Uh, And it's no wonder that a lot of Republicans uh, have made this explicit code, not so much dog whistling as the way they run campaigns.
1: Yeah. I think, and I I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, uh, one of the studies that really kind of informs what we're doing and and keep feels like makes it feel like we're on the right track is uh, by Lee Drutman. And I think he's at the New America Foundation And 20. He describes 20% of the electorate that is supportive of raising the minimum wage, expanding public health care programs and getting money out of politics, but is regressive on immigration. And that's a big, chunk. And you know, and some of those folks vote Republicans, some vote Democrats, some don't vote. But I feel like a lot of the future of the country is kind of tied up in how that group makes meaning of it. Let
0: me ask you, though, are they also regressive on science? That's what I really wanted mm. to ask you in the part of this pandemic.
1: I, I actually don't know in this study, but it's a great question. I would imagine some of the things that we would find people to be... I mean, I, I would bet some, and then I think some really are like, Getting back to that, I feel like you were kind of raising a scarcity kind of mindset of like there's not enough, and I don't have enough, and I don't know how to get enough and then I see you know see people saying, Hey well, like, we got to give some some folks who just got here stuff like that's just a very easy frame to evoke in somebody's mind, and I think like as a political strategy, my sense is that conservatives will are gonna double and triple down on that for a long time. I don't know the question on science um yeah I and mean, we just I don't have the data on that
0: right, and you taped these conversations and did this work in large measure prior to the pandemic, so it's not specific to conversations about science and whether we should heed public health advisories um, but is there anything you wanted to convey about the treatment of public health in these communities?
1: I mean, I think it's when we did the first ten thousand 000- Conversations of just listening. This was before deep canvassing, just going out, knocking on people's door, and, and asking what they thought. One, the main thing we heard was people said nobody's ever asked me before, um, so we just heard that over and over. And I think people appreciated being asked. But far and away, the number one issue that people were concerned about was health. And um, and then secondly, when we asked the question of what the solutions were, actually way more around public. Provisions for for healthcare, and I think maybe more than we we thought was going to be the case. So I think health is the and, and healthcare is like going to continue to be a defining issue in these communities. If if Democrats wanted to do better in these communities, I think they'd want to really kind of hold on to that and fight for that as an issue. And then the health health outcomes in rural communities are really they, they were not great to begin with. They're really in decline right now. So I think. I think it's a big opportunity for Democrats if they kind of kind of stick on message and move things. And I say that many people in rural communities, a lot of people didn't know they had the ACA until it was getting taken away. And then I think then they started to understand it. But it's, it's a very, very popular and winning issue in rural communities.
0: And, and it does seem like the Biden campaign gets it. And, and I said to Thomas Frank when he was on the program, you know, they need to enlist you and people like you, George, too, to advise them. Uh, Kathy Kramer or someone else. Mm -hmm. Three of you have extraordinary insight into this question. Uh, It does seem like Biden's getting along okay, but proof will be in the pudding Mm -hmm. on November 3rd and and the subsequent days. Final question, George. I recently hosted the Dean of Indiana Politics, uh, Elizabeth Bennion, on the program here. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: we discussed why the economic impact or consequence of the pandemic may not be felt in the communities that were hard hit during the 2008 recession that led for a rather radical transformation of the electorate as it expressed its will in the 2008 presidential election. And she was anticipating that that was not going to happen, uh, perhaps because of some of the artificial stimulus that will give us some short-term appearance of uh, physical health and communities, but won't be long lived in uh, improving the quality of life. So that's my last question. Given what you experienced in the conversations on the podcast, um, we we know that the short-term stimulus, it was not designed to help real people, but it's not clear that real people are going to know the wrath of the pandemic in their day-to-day lives until after November third,
1: I, I totally agree with that. I feel like the the worst is yet to come, and I believe we're going to need some version of permanent stimulus and permanent job creation. And I think we've got a responsibility to take a real, real lemon that we've been delivered and, and turn it into a win. And so I think it's a moment, and I hope the Biden administration is, you know, if assuming we get there, would be ready to go into some kind of a big. You know, more New Deal, Green New Deal like vision of where we might go. A big doubling down on care jobs as a key sector of the economy, where there's a lot of need and a lot of opportunity. I think it is a, I think it's a go big moment, and uh, and I'm hoping that that's that's how they orient versus kind of getting pulled into an austerity mindset, which you know I can see the allure of it, but I I think that's just not going to get it done in some of these communities.
0: George Gill, thank you so much for your insight today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.